Hi, and good afternoon, everybody. My name is Monica Burrell, and I'm a Commonwealth Fund Fellow in Minority Health Policy. It is my great pleasure today to introduce our speaker, Governor Michael Dukakis. Governor Dukakis is a distinguished professor of political science at Northeastern University. He was the governor of Massachusetts from 1974 to 1978, and then again from 1982 to 1990. Governor Dukakis is a native of Brookline, Massachusetts. He is a graduate of Swarthmore College and Harvard Law School, and he served two years in the United States Army. Governor Dukakis began his political career in local government and then served in state government as a legislator for four years. He was the Massachusetts Democratic Party's nominee for lieutenant governor, governor in 1970. As governor, he is credited with digging Massachusetts out of one of its worst financial and economic crises in history. At the time, the Massachusetts unemployment rate was 11.2%. By 1988, it was down to 2.9%. In 1986, his colleagues in the National Governors Association voted him the most effective governor in the nation. Governor Dukakis was the Democratic nominee for president in 1988. In addition to being a professor at Northeastern, he is a visiting professor at the School of Public Policy at UCLA. His research focuses on national healthcare policy reform and the lessons that national policymakers can learn from state reform efforts. Recently, he co-authored a book entitled How to Get into Politics and Why, which is designed to encourage young people to think seriously about politics and public service as a career. Some interesting facts that you may not know about the governor. He has lived and worked in both Hawaii and Australia. He was the only state government employee to go to work during the blizzard of 1978. <laughs> he rode the subway to work every day while governor. And most importantly to me, he leads by example. My children know him as the neighbor who cares so much about our neighborhood that he picks up the trash along the way while he goes to work. Please join me in welcoming Governor Dukakis. I'll now hand the program over to Professor Blendon. Thank you. Uh, just a minute before we turn it over uh, to the governor. Uh, this is a very special series uh, at the school. And the aim of the series is to have people understand the critical way people who make major decisions that shape the future. Think about them, their experiences, how they really listen and learn. And when it's your turn, and the reason why people come to Harvard is that we have a dream that sometime we can change the course of that river. Uh, what do I do? How do I think about it? How did others do that? So it's a privilege of having uh, the governor here, uh, and for many of us, he was the presidential candidate, he was the governor, he was the leader of so many uh, advisory groups for presidents and governors. And what we want today, and the format will be is, uh, he'll have some opening remarks. I will ask just one question to make it relaxed uh, for you to ask the rest. Uh, and then we're really gonna follow uh, his thinking about how you can be an effective leader in the next generation. Governor, again, it's a privilege to be Thanks here with you. Thanks. Um, it's good to be with you. Thank you for being so close to Northeastern. It's just a quick stroll <laughs> up the street. Um, I owe you all an apology. If I had beaten Bush one, you'd have never heard of Bush two, and we wouldn't be in this mess. <laughs> so it's all my fault, and I feel that personally every day. Um, and there's a lot to be said for riding the streetcar when you're governor. It's amazing what you learn in the streetcar. You don't learn it in a limousine, you learn it streetcar. Not only that, but I think we dramatically improved the quality of the transit system at the same time, John. There's something about the governor riding it that <laughs> inspires people to do well. And very special, Bob, of course, and I are old friends and colleagues, and great to see John McDonough here, who uh, knows a lot about how you get things done in the public sector, believe me. And uh, you're lucky to have him as a member of the faculty. Um, Betty said to me, before you finish up, I want you to leave folks with a couple of takeaways. I'm going to start with a takeaway. And if you remember nothing else about this session, you'll remember, I hope you'll remember this. You can't divorce public policy from politics. I want to repeat that. 
You cannot divorce public policy from politics. When I was governor, I interviewed lots and lots of people who wanted to work for me. If somebody said to me, well, you know, I'm a policy person, not a political person, I said, well, I'd say to them, thank you, but you can't work for me. Now, what do I mean, folks? I mean that um, if you're going to be effective in the public sector, and I assume, how many of you have worked in public service? Some. How many of you want to work in public service? Public or nonprofit, I mean, it's, these days it's... Um, you've got to develop a set of what I call political skills. Now, uh, this doesn't necessarily mean organizing precincts, although there's a lot to be said for that. Um, Elizabeth Warren had better organize every one of the 2,157 precincts in the state she's going to beat Brown. She can beat them, but she's got to organize those precincts. A precinct captain and six block captains in every precinct making personal contact with every single voting household. That's one set of political skills. And I'm all for you guys developing that as citizens. But I'm talking about the kinds of political skills one needs if one is going to be effective in the public sector. And uh, it's not that we're born with them. Uh, every once in a while, somebody comes along. I mean, Bill Clinton has it in his DNA. I don't know where it came from him. He just has it. <laughs> but most of us don't. We may like to talk. We may like people. We may care deeply about uh, the state of the world and want to do something about it. And frankly, most of us who go into, public, into the public service the sector, as, as I suspect you do, are here because you want to make a difference in the lives of your fellow citizens. And you can. Now, of course, there are two basic rules which I repeat to my students all the time. I mean, if you want to do work in the public sector, plan to live moderately. If you want to make a lot of money, don't go into the public sector and have a good but conventional sex life. If you're into the other stuff, good luck to you, but don't go into public service. Very complicated. <laughs> but what, what do I mean by, by, by political skills? Um, first, you've got to have passion for the job. You've got to care deeply about what you're doing. If you don't have that, then forget it. But secondly, you've got to be able to master, as best one can, this very complicated political environment in which you find yourself. Uh, one of the reasons that uh, business people don't do well in the public sector, for the most part, with rare exceptions, is that while they're very good at what they do in the business world, they just don't understand this much more interesting, much more complicated, by no means impossible, but uh, far more complex environment. Why do I say that? Well, because if you're the governor, your board of directors is the legislature. Now, in the private sector, boards of directors, for the most part, are handpicked by the CEO. That is not the case. Um, the good people of Jamaica Plain elected this guy. Fortunately, he's a terrific guy and was a terrific guy and a terrific lawmaker. But uh, your board of directors is the legislature or the Congress, or the City Council. And working effectively with these folks is a major challenge and one you have to master. Whether you happen to be in the governor's office or whether you happen to be running an agency or whatever. Uh, I didn't do that very well in my first term, despite the fact that I'd been in the legislature for eight years. Why? Well, it's a whole different kind of ball game. And one of the things you have to do is involve your legislators in policy making from the beginning. If you see a policy area that you think needs work, the first thing you do is pick up the phone and call, if it's supposing, if it's, I mean, John and I work very closely in the healthcare thing, um, you've got to involve key legislators who have a strong, deep interest and considerable knowledge about health policy from the get-go. Um, as I teach my students all the time, you've got to make a list of whom, well, what I call the key players. I hate this word stakeholder, you know, it's like somebody comes along and, <clears throat> you know, sticks and stakeholder. <laughs> um, but who are we talking about? We're talking about people in the executive branch that you're going to have to work with, including the budget agency, almost invariably. You're talking about legislators. You're talking about legislators at a variety of levels, because in a federal system, this is at least a three-level, and in many states, a four-level system. And uh, there are very few domestic issues these days, folks, where the federal government is not involved, where the local governments are not involved, if you're operating at the state level or if you're operating at the local level, where those folks above you, if you will, must be involved. And they want to be involved. And they can be enormously helpful, but they've got to be part of the process from the beginning. You've got to reach out to constituencies and advocacy groups and the leaders of those advocacy groups. And you've got to work with them. 
and they're not easy. I mean, they're in the business of making demands. That's what they do. Nothing the matter with that. But uh, how do you handle a situation where you want to go home for supper? And I had this thing about, Kitty and I have had two basic rules and still have them. No politics on Sunday, with three exceptions, St. Patrick's Day, Parade in South Boston, Greek Independence Day, and Combined Jewish Philanthropy Super Sunday, in which, I, in which case I took Saturday off, and dinner at home. No kidding. Dinner at home at 6 o'clock at night. And I'm just a, I was a fanatic, still am. And there's something to it. My wife and I celebrated our 48th wedding anniversary, so I recommend this strongly to you. Um, but, um, and by the way, how you deal with your personal life is an important part of this. I can tell you. But what do you do when uh, there are a bunch of advocates, you're the governor, you want to go home on the tea as I did for supper before I went out to wherever I was going that night, and you got a bunch of folks sitting in your office. Well, they didn't know that I had a secret escape route up to the fourth floor, down the hall, down the stairs, out onto the common and down the... And <laughs> these poor folks would be sitting there waiting for me. <laughs> Where's he gone? <laughs> you know. But in any event, Constituencies are important, and they must be involved in policy making from the beginning because they know a lot. Sometimes they know a lot more than you do or the folks that are working for you because they're out there. You've got to be able to deal with the press folks. Dealing with the media and communicating through the media, particularly these days when you've got all this social media as well as the more traditional media, is an essential part of your job. Now, I'm the last guy in the world to advise the President of the United States these days, and for that matter, the Democrats in Congress, on how to communicate on the subject of health care. But quite frankly, I think they've done a lousy job. And given my track record nationally when it comes to communicating, I'm very humble about this. But I think they just missed this. And a congressional and presidential achievement, which is history-making, turns out to be at best neutral and maybe a negative. Why? Because they didn't frame a message, in my judgment, that connected with people. Now, you may disagree with this. Feel free to do so. But um, I don't think this is about pre-existing conditions or insurance reform or any of jazz. It's about whether or not working people and their families in the United States of America will have decent and affordable health care. Because as all of you know, what, we've got 54 million uninsured people. Overwhelmingly, they're working members of working families. They're not loafing, they're not sitting around, they're not on public assistance. If you're on public assistance, you get Medicaid. These are working folks, no health care. And John will tell you that when we were working together on the Massachusetts effort and the bill that I signed in 1988, which quite frankly is a hell of a lot better than the one we got, even though I'll take the one we got in contrast to nothing. In fact, it was the old Nixon plan translated into state policy. And there is one state in the country that did that many years ago. What is it? Nobody knows. Just you and me, Jim. Huh? Nobody says Who's? Dwight. Yeah. Got it. Takes an Australian to tell me. <laughs> On the way over, you must have stopped and checked it out. <laughs> um, I must have had, gotcha, 200 press events. We never had one without a working person or a working family next to me. That was the theme. Working folks and their families in Massachusetts were going to have decent, affordable health care. It was the last thing we did. Um, I'm not hearing that. Are you? I've never heard it. Either from the White House or the Congressional Democrats, who quite frankly have not done a particularly good job. So how you frame your issue, and I'm not talking about, this is not talking about dumbing it down, and how you address it publicly. You know, we all have our jargon professionally, right? We talk in acronyms, acronyms. People out there don't, don't know what we're talking about. Docs who get up and tell you what was wrong with that patient at a press conference, and they're using technical terms that every once in a while you find a doctor who can do this and do it effectively. Lawyers who talk, we had the big fight over no-fault auto insurance, and lawyers would get on in these panels that I'd do, and, People, people had no idea what they were talking about, litigation and torts. People thought torts were something you ate. They didn't understand this stuff. <laughs> um, just being able to address the issue in English that's understandable um, is important. And, and being comfortable with the media, um, understanding that a good media campaign can help you not only persuade people of the 
wisdom of your cause, but help you to implement the program. Gordon Chase, who was a wonderful, do you guys read any of Gordon Chase's stuff? Any, is that, well, Chase was an interesting guy. He, uh, he's the guy that taught me how to teach, frankly. He was a kid from Worcester, went to Harvard, went to the Marines, came out, went into the Foreign Service, uh, was discovered by McGeorge Bundy in the American Embassy in London, who was very impressed with this guy and brought him into the National Security Council when Bundy was um, Kennedy's National Security Advisor. Subsequently became the first health services administrator in New York City ever to be a non-doc. And at the time, the medical profession was very upset with Lindsay for appointing him, a superb public manager. He was my Secretary of Health and Human Services for 13 days till I got beaten in the Democratic primary in 1978. And he ran back across the river to resume teaching at the Kennedy School. And we ended up teaching together there. And um, he, he was a remarkable guy. And he makes this case in a little book, which you, if you can get it, get a hold of it. It's called Managing the Public Sector. I still use it. It's the only thing, in my judgment, worth using when it comes to teaching this stuff. And um, he talked about the importance of the media, which was kind of a discovery for him as well, because he wasn't a natural communicator. That's not what he did. He started on foreign service. And how uh, he discovered, among other things, that when it came to lead poisoning, the most important thing you could do was connect with mothers who could then make sure that their kids weren't gnawing on windowsills or ingesting this stuff. And the way you did that was by using TV and radio. And in his case, especially radio, which kind of surprised him. So being effective with the press isn't just being able to handle uh, the not-so-happy, happy valley these days uh, and what's going on over there. I married a Penn State graduate, so I wouldn't. It's been a, certainly a high degree of interest in what's been going on in State College, Pennsylvania, around the Dukakis House. Um, but it's understanding that an effective media campaign can help you to implement policy, especially the kind of policy that you guys are interested in. And that means you've got to be comfortable with it, you've got to speak in ways that people can understand, and you've got to take it seriously. Um, building coalitions. It won't always work, but your chances of being successful are a hell of a lot better if you bring people into the process early, make them a part of the process, make them a part of the solution, and then go out there together to try to sell the program. Nobody knows that better than John. He did it as well as anybody I can remember in the Massachusetts legislature. Um, but it took me a while to figure that out. You know, I was a reformer when I was in the legislature. I was elected in 1962 at a time when this state was one of the three or four most corrupt states in the country. I kid you not. Um, as a matter of fact, when I was out ringing doorbells in my first legislative campaign, you know, people would say to me, you look honest, I'll vote for you. I finally called my mother. I said, Mom, thanks for make, producing a kid that looks honest. You know, I, mean, um, I mean, it was that bad. So I was the head of, because he used to give my Greek immigrant father heartburn to read that his son was the leader of the Young Turks in the legislature. But in any event, um, uh, so I was kind of a reform guy. You know, we, I and my 20 to 25 of my younger Democratic colleagues who were battling the system all the time. Well, you become governor. Um, there's nothing wrong with, with approaching your job with passion and with, with strong feelings and, and uh, important issues, but you've got to be a coalition builder. You have to develop those kinds of skills, folks. And I'm talking about uh, those of you who guys like me are looking for to recruit to come work for them, as well as people that seek elective office, because if you're running an agency or running a program, you've got to do that as well. Um, you've got to be comfortable with elected officials. You know, we're, we don't have 10 heads. I mean, you know, we put on our pants one, one leg at a time. I mean, and, and by the way, folks who run for elective office, with very few exceptions, do so for the same reasons all of us are here, because they care very deeply about their community and state and country, and they want to do something about it. Um, but I will say this to you. There's nothing more personally fulfilling and satisfying than being in a position where you can make a difference in the lives of your fellow citizens. And don't tell anybody you can't do it. That good people working together can't make a difference. And I'll say one other thing. There is nothing inherently corrupting about public service. That's a lot of baloney. That's a lot of baloney. 
I mean, you've got to set high standards for yourself and the people that work for you. Every once in a while, somebody's going to disappoint you by going off the reservation. It happened to me twice in 12 years, and I was furious both times. But um, setting high standards of integrity and living those standards is not difficult, but you've got a plan to live moderately and have a good but conventional sex life. Anyway, um, those are just a few thoughts about uh, this whole public enterprise that we are actively involved in. But don't let anybody tell you that you cannot make a difference. Um, you know, I walk around town these days, John, and, um, and I marvel at this city. Look, I grew up at a time, both in this country and in this city, where um, we were racist, anti-Semitic, um, all this talk about those wonderful schools that we all went to and how schools are going to hell in a handbasket in the United States is absolute nonsense. Public schools in the United States today are light years better than they were. When Kitty and I graduated from Brookline High School, what do you think the dropout rate was in the United States? Any idea? Kids who didn't finish high school. Back in the day when the schools were wonderful and everybody behaved, nobody got pregnant, all that, you know, wonderful stuff. Over half the kids in this country never completed high school. Over 70% of the minority kids. As a matter of fact, the African-American high school completion rate in 1940, when I was seven years of age, was 12%, and most of those black kids were going to crappy, legally, racially segregated schools, including the public schools of Washington, D.C., the capital of the free world, as we called it. Um, infant mortality was five times what it is today. This city itself was shabby, dirty, declining, angry. And the fact that things are very different has a lot to do with people like yourself who decided they wanted something better and went out and worked like hell to do so. But they had to develop these political skills, folks. Now, don't get, don't get me wrong. I mean, it's, it's a certain amount of intelligence and ability to deal with policy and, and shape policy is very important. But um, unless you develop this, what I've called this set of political skills, you're going to have a very tough time making things happen. And uh, most of us have to work at it. We're not a Bill Clinton. We're not born with this stuff. Uh, I mean, that guy's just remarkable. You know? I mean, he, he was... He's got this new book out, you know, Back to Work, and he was talking about it in D.C. a week ago. And um, here we are with all this stuff flying around. And he said, uh, this, is, this is pure Clinton. He said, uh, no great civilization in the history of humankind was anti-government. Think about it. Only Clinton in seven words could, <laughs> could capture that. And when you think about it, Give me one great civilization in the history of humankind that was anti-government. Um, but as I say, it's in his DNA. I mean, I, and he's got a few other problems, as all of us know, and I love him dearly. But, um, but you've got to work at these skills, folks. You've got to develop them. And, um, and if you do, then a combination of intelligence and passion and a concern for people can be translated into real results. And that's what I hope you'll all be doing. And believe me, we need you. There's lots to do out there, including lots to do internationally. And I was saying to somebody the other day when, that when in my junior, after my junior year at Swarthmore, I was able to get a scholarship to Peru for the summer. I didn't speak a word of Spanish. Don't ask me. I won't even tell you how I got there. But... In any event, what I did discover is the Greek and Spanish accents are identical, even though the languages are different. Don't ask me why, but they are. So if you speak Greek, you can speak perfectly accented Spanish and vice versa. So at least I had an accent, you know. <laughs> when I was in Peru in 1954, one out of every two Peruvian babies never reached its first birthday. Now, I don't know what the infant mortality rate is in Peru these days, but I'll tell you, it's a hell of a lot less than that. And this is true all over the world. And, and many of you and your colleagues are doing incredible work internationally as well as uh, here. You know, the one remaining question is, what the hell is the matter with the United States? 
when we can't provide decent, affordable health care for all of our people. And we're spending twice per capita what everybody else is spending to do the same thing. If you want to get into that in detail in our Q&A, I'd be happy to do it. But um, again, understanding the importance of mastering as best one can the political environment in which one develops and tries to implement public policy is absolutely critical to your success. And uh, even as you're working on policy and academic stuff and so on and so forth, make sure that's part of what you do around here because uh, without it, you just can't do the kinds of things that we all expect you're going to do. Enough for me. You have a question. Before we open to you, just one. So, uh, Governor, when I first saw you, you were speaking at a White House conference on urban development, mm -hmm. and I envisioned you'd be a presidential candidate talking about the economy and fixing cities and everything. And then I turned around and you were the leading spokesman as a governor for health care. How did you get there given, as you said, combined politics with policy? This has not been a good issue for people in U.S. elected politics, and you became a leader in that field and stayed with it and counseled people. Why did it people. happen? Why did it happen? Because I'm a failed pre-med. <laughs> my dad was a remarkable guy, Bob. Uh, my mother was, too, for that matter. Um, my father was born in a predominantly Greek town in western Turkey. There were a million and a half Greeks in western Turkey prior to the forced exchange in 1923, and he was one of them. His parents were islanders, but like a lot of the islanders, they'd gone to the mainland because there was more economic opportunity there. And over the violent objection of his father, at the age of 15, he said, I'm leaving. I'm going to the United States. He had a couple of brothers working in the textile mills in Lawrence and Lowell to get an education, which was unusual, Bob, because in those days, Greece came over here like other immigrants to get a job. And he came here. And that young 15-year-old who didn't speak a word of English, didn't have a nickel in his pocket, 12 years later, later was graduating from the medical school next door. And don't ask me how he did it. That was an incredible story. And practiced medicine for 52 years across from the Museum of Fine Arts at 454 Huntington Avenue. Now, interestingly enough, Burstein Hall at Northeastern University. And my brother was not particularly interested in medicine, so I was kind of the heir apparent. When kids got hurt in the neighborhood, I'd bring them in and put on the curachrome, as we called it in those days, <laughs> and the band-aids and all that kind of stuff. And I'd, you know, I'd been a good student at, at Brookline High. I'd never had any problems. I mean, I took biology and chemistry, and I figured, got to Swarthmore, I'll start with physics. There's a piece of my brain, folks, marked fissing, f physics that's missing. I mean, <laughs> I'd never had this problem before. I just couldn't get it. The harder I worked, the worse I did. I finally got a charitable D. I was having a wonderful time in political science, economics, and history. Called my dad and said, he was very good about it. I said, yeah, I just, I just don't think it's going to be medicine. But when you grow up in the household of a guy who works seven days a week, who uh, has a heavily ethnic practice, but at the same time as a fellow of the American College of Surgeons, does his own surgery and delivers about 3,000 babies, um, and brings you into the office to handle the patients on Saturday. He had office hours on Saturdays and Sundays. Um, the notion that people would have to go without health care because they couldn't afford it was just, and my dad was no radical. In fact, he was a registered Republican, and the only way, John, I got him to vote for me was to tell him that he couldn't vote for me in the Democratic primary unless he got that darn R off his name, so at least he was an independent, so he could get in, go in and take a Democratic ballot in the primary. Um, but a wonderful guy, and, uh, and growing up in that household, and I think I just had this sense that for this country, uh, not to make it possible for everybody to have decent, affordable health care was just uh, a national disgrace. And I wish I heard a little more of that rhetoric, frankly, these days, because I think it is a national disgrace that we have not been able to do that. But that's how I got interested in health care. And then remember, I remember Harry Truman, and I remember the Truman plan, and I remember the Nixon plan, and I remember the Clinton plan. And we finally have a president and a Congress who were able to do it, and now we're trying to figure out why people don't like it. And there, I think, the media piece and the message 
has not been done well. Now, feel free to disagree with me. Maybe it's another way to describe this, but if you go out and take a poll, folks, tomorrow, and you ask the American people, should working people and their families have decent, affordable health care, what do you think the numbers would look like? I mean, it's about 95%. The other five haven't thought about it. I'm serious. I mean, it's overwhelming. So why are we saying that? I don't know. I don't know. It's your turn. Questions and tell us who you are. I thought you told me this was a lively verbal group here. <laughs> uh, Don't feel intimidated. Must have been hey. spread over the air because they are. Okay. Don't let me intimidate you. You know, George H.W. Bush beat me for the presidency. You know, how could I be losing this guy? Have you seen that Saturday Night Live thing? I've been asked. I've been asking that, that, myself that question ever since. Yeah, go ahead. Hello, my name is Shanice Chris. I'm a second-year doctoral student in Society Human Development and Health and very interested in public service. Where from? South Carolina. Where in South Carolina? Greenville, South Carolina. Greenville. Mm -hmm. I have kinfolk in Greenwood. Oh, cool. Our way. Have you, okay. ever eaten, have you ever eaten at the Star Cafe? You ate at a place where my no. Uncle Nick ran the place for about 67 years. Anyway, go ahead. I'm very interested in the media exposure, and I want to know... How do you balance positive messaging versus negative messaging when you're doing these media campaigns? What's more effective or with the positive versus negative messaging? Good question. Um, I mean, clearly part of what you've got to do with the media is deal with the shots that people are taking at you. And I don't mean in a personal sense or taking at your policy. I mean, you've got to, I mean, one of the, the biggest mistake, I made a lot of mistakes in the presidential campaign. The biggest mistake I made was in making a decision, it was my decision, nobody else, that I would not respond to the Bush attack campaign. It just turned out to be a huge mistake. What should I have done? I should have attempted to put together, to think through in advance, a strategy for dealing with the Bush attack campaign, which preferably turned his attack campaign into a character issue on him. Now, it's easier said than done. But... I just made the decision I was going to, it was, you know, it was just a huge mistake. So you've got to try to anticipate what the opposition is going to say, and you've got to frame what you're saying in ways that will deal with that. That's why I think the idea that this is all about, and I think I'm accurate in saying this, is all about working people and their families. It's not only a powerful message, but what is the uh, Republican leader in the Senate going to say if you turn to him and say, uh, hey, Mitch, you don't believe that working people and their families ought to have decent, affordable health care? I mean, it seems to me in, in framing the message, you're already kind of setting up the opponents. Well, how would you do it if you don't like our business? How would you make it possible for working people? Or don't you think working people and their families ought to have decent, affordable health care? You get the point here. Um, but much of what you do on the media side, especially those of you in the field that you're specializing in, really has to do with reaching out to folks, informing them and helping them to try to care for themselves and their families, to follow good practices and so forth. And that's, that really has nothing to do with, with opposition as such. It's, it's an attempt to reach out to people and communicate with them effectively about what, diet and, and substance abuse and a million other things that, that we're all involved in as we try to help people live, live healthy lives. Um, so yes, there is a kind of negative thing that you've got to anticipate, particularly if you're in the middle of an important battle over major public policy. But in so many cases, especially those of you in, in the field of public health, it's all about informing people as effectively as Chase tried to do that the way to, the most effective way to protect your kids from lead poisoning is to make sure they don't ingest the stuff in the first place. And that's a very powerful message that that the press can help you to get out. I mean, John went at it with, with children's health, just banged away and banged away and banged away. Kids in this state are going to have decent, affordable health care. And by the time it was over, <laughs> the only people who opposed him were the, were the then governor, who then began taking credit for it later, remember? Um, that was Weld. And, uh, and the tobacco industry, because it was going to be financed with a cigarette. Everybody else was with him. Now, a lot of that had to do with his particular skill, but a lot of it had to do with the message. We're going to make sure that children in this state have decent and affordable health care. That's, that's a powerful message to attack. Don't you agree? Now, what did they attack? Well, they attacked an extra, what was it, a dime or something on the cigarette tax? Huh? A quarter. A quarter. Should have been a half a buck, right? <laughs> Why not? 
Um, but, uh, but notice in framing the issue as he did, um, you're already kind of setting up your defenses against the attackers. And it was attacked mostly by the tobacco industry. But then again, consider the enemy. I mean, they're not the most popular people in the world. And the cause was just so compelling. And he made that case, folks, using the media. Yeah. Uh, is this working? Yeah. Uh, my name is Predrag Stojčić. I'm an MPH student from Serbia. And I'm just a messenger at this moment. Uh, I'm actually grateful to welcome you in, f in front of the people who are in an overflow room and who are watching this over the internet. And this is the first time we introduce this questionnaire so people can ask questions uh, even if they're not in the room. Okay. So we, out of many interesting questions we got, the, we, we pick up one that I think is quite challenging. And it's coming from Elizabeth Chan. Uh, she's an MPH student here at HSPH. And I, I'm going to read it so so be sure that it's, it's reflected properly. So... Massachusetts has been successful in reaching near universal health care insurance coverage. As we move towards cost control, uh, what needs to happen next? Which stakeholders do you believe, or like key players, like you said, uh, do you believe need to step forward to take an effective lead? And how long we will need before we can see a bending curve in Massachusetts? How much I time do we have? I may be off on a slightly different tangent from a lot of my friends who are working on this. But I begin with a simple proposition. The market does not work in healthcare. It never has and it never will. And uh, indulging ourselves in the notion that it will is just a colossal waste of time. Now, it's not a sin that the market doesn't work. I mean, I'm a market guy. If you want to go out and buy a television set, uh, you know, they're practically giving them away. I mean, go to Best Buy, go to here, go to there, and so on. But the market doesn't work in healthcare for reasons that you're all very familiar with. And if the market doesn't work, you have to regulate. R-E-G-U-L-A-T-E. Thoughtfully, responsibly, and with the active involvement of all of the people who provide healthcare and who are very important to us. I mean, our healthcare community is very important in this state. You know, we're not a life sciences, uh, an international life sciences center by accident, folks. We've got terrific people around here, and they're very important to us. And as I've often said, if you want to get sick, you know, get sick in Boston. I mean, there's no better place to do that. And by the way, they know the whole system is crazy, too, because they'll tell you so. Now, it just so happens that the governor of the Commonwealth has all the authority he needs right now to regulate health insurance premiums in this state. Doesn't need additional legislation. As a matter of fact, John will tell you that if a governor sends in a bill, it might come back with half of his authority stripped from him. So you've got to watch this. And, uh, and so, and the governor and I have had lots of conversations about this, and I've been urging him, and he has, he has acted under that authority to some extent. But for reasons I don't understand, what is it with us? Um, this is a case of regulating. And uh, if we paid a little attention, it might be a good idea, to the experience of other countries around the world who are doing this and who for some reason seem to be able to provide rather good health care to their people at half the cost we do. Whatever the system, whether it's Australian Medicare or uh, a multi-payer system in Germany or an essentially privatized system in Switzerland, Every one of them regulates costs, without exception. What do we do? Come up with this ACO global payment thing. If, if one more person says to me, what do you think about payment reform? This is not about payment reform. It's about regulating costs, folks. We've done it, you know, ACOs and global payments. What do we used to call them? HMOs and capitation. We tried that, folks. It didn't work. <laughs> Why are we doing it again? Now, don't get me wrong. Nobody loves having to regulate. Um, we had something called the Rate Setting Commission when I was governor. And by the way, it wasn't my initiative. It preceded me. It happened under a Republican governor. We treated hospitals as public utilities. They couldn't raise their rates a nickel unless they went to the Rate Setting Commission. We certainly didn't have these huge disparities between what partners gets and what the BI gets. Wouldn't allow it. Um, 
So we've got to get on with the business of regulating costs. And I think the the least bureaucratic way to do it, rather than getting into settling, setting uh, elaborate fee schedules and so forth, is essentially to use the authority we have in this state under the state insurance statutes to regulate the rate of increase in the cost of premiums. Now, let me also emphasize, however, that you just can't, you know, the governor can't say, well, we're just going to regulate premiums. You've got to involve the key players, providers, consumers, legislators and so forth, in a process of developing how we're going to regulate and then carefully monitoring it so that, in point of fact, it works and works effectively, and at the same time make sure that we provide people with excellent health care, which we do in this state. Um, and what I'm worried about is that we're futzing around with new institutional arrangements, accountable care organizations. Look, I'm a member of Harvard Vanguard. I get good health care. It's an, a it's an ACO, isn't it? More or less. It's the most expensive health care in the state. I mean, ACOs, global payments. You know, we're going to spend 10 years going through this. And we're going to end up exactly where we ended up after a decade of, or two decades of HMOs and capitation. And I was a member of one of the first HMOs in the state. I mean, the so-called Harvard Community Health Plan, which unfortunately has morphed into this Harvard Vanguard thing. And we got great care. And it was terrific. But it was a staff model HMOs and you know, HMO, and we didn't get stars in our eyes and do all this kind of stuff and try to expand it and include an IPA and all this kind of thing. So that's my view. And um, my advice to the governor is to get on with it, frankly. And uh, don't waste too much time futzing around with the legislative process, which uh, has given us this year legislative redistricting. That's a good thing. Casinos, that's not a good thing. And hasn't given us cost control which is far more important than either of those things. That doesn't make sense to you. Argue with me, but what can I tell you? Yeah. Hi, my name is Dequele Ablor. I'm a doctoral student in epidemiology, and you mentioned the importance of building coalitions. So I was curious, when you had first proposed health care, um, who do you think were the strongest proponents, not necessarily just partisan-wise, so Democrats versus Republicans? Republicans, with the universal health care bill that John and I worked on? Right. So in terms of industry or um, private organizations, who do you think were the strongest proponents and who do you think would still be the strongest proponents today? Where well, the I'll make your question a little bit and talk about who decide. the opponents were. Okay. <laughs> well, look, again, if you go out and ask people, should working people and their families have decent, affordable health care, it's overwhelming, particularly if you emphasize working, right? Um, and just about all of us have a stake in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a good, comprehensive health plan, which covers everybody, at reasonable cost. Um, on the other hand, within this healthcare community of ours, there are obviously a lot of people who are concerned about this. Why? Because you know, if you're spending $2.5 trillion on health care, that's $2.5 trillion worth of spending, but it's also $2.5 trillion worth of income to somebody. So the economic stakes are quite high. Okay. I mean, that's not unusual in politics. You've got to deal with that. And so the question is, can you bring people to the table who represent these interests in a way that gets them working together, collaborating together, so long as they agree that everybody should have decent, affordable health care, and there are very few people, at least around my table, who didn't believe that, who generally didn't believe that. Um, secondly, you've got to have a quarterback. One of the problems these days, I think, is that I'm not quite sure who the quarterback is in the executive branch. My quarterback was my Secretary of Health and Human Services. It was a guy named Phil Johnston who had been a legislator, had formidable political skills, and uh, he was the guy that I looked to to convene this working group, and I think you were one of them, weren't you, John? You were part of that group, yeah. I remember John saying, you're talking about Hawaii. You were <laughs> that was a long time ago. Um, and then you got to work with these folks to, to see if you can help them to understand why it is in their best interest, if not their self-interest, 
to do so. Now, what do you do with the employer community? Well, we have a relatively high percentage of our employers who do provide health insurance to their employees, about 73%. It's very high. You know, when I go out to California in the wintertime, sorry about that, but somebody's got to do it, folks. It's a terrible burden. Um, I don't know what the California, they're down the high 50s now and dropping. Um, but that still means 27% of the employers in the state are not insuring, and the 73% in effect are paying for the 27%, right? Fortunately, there was a guy named Nelson Gifford that I had never met who ran the Denison Company back when there was a Denison Company in Framingham. An interesting guy. I think he's probably a moderate Republican. Um, but he understood this, that he and his fellow employers who were providing health insurance to their employees were paying for these guys who weren't. And he went to the business community and he said, look, this is intolerable. Everybody or nearly every employer in the state ought to be expected and employees to contribute to health care. So he was an ally. And he was very effective in convincing lots of employers to do so. How about the folks in the healthcare community? Well, most of them, you know, tend to be quite reasonable. And uh, they're doing it because they really want to help people. That's why they're going to the profession in the first place. And if you talk to them, as I said to you a few minutes ago, if you talk to people, they, I mean, I've had lots of conversations with Gary Gottlieb and other folks. I mean, he knows the system is crazy. He just basically said to me, just don't drop it on us. You know, involve us. I mean, let's, let's do it in a way that makes sure that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. President of Partners. Really. Yeah, President of Partners. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and a great guy, psychiatrist by profession, ran the Brigham before he went to Partners. Um, so I think you begin with, with considerable goodwill. Now, what about the biotech industry, which is very nervous about regulation because they have to spend a lot of money to develop these products? Uh, I mean, there are all kinds of... But the, 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 the thing that makes... The thing that's unique about being governor in this situation is that when you ask people to come to the table, they come. I never remember anybody, when I finally figured this out, and it took me a long time to do so, I mean, this process stuff, I never remember anybody when we'd invite them to be part of a working group on whatever the issue was. I never remember anybody saying, screw you, Governor, I'm not coming. I mean, people don't do that. Right? I mean, they, if you invite them, especially if it's the governor or a key legislator or something, they come. They want to be a part of the solution. So I think you start with a lot of goodwill. And then you just got to work it through. And we were able to do so in a variety of ways. Did we have some problems? Yeah. I mean, in some cases, we didn't anticipate them. Um, Congress made a pretty substantial cut in Medicare, which was going to cost our hospitals 50 million bucks. I don't know what they were spending gross at the time, Joe, something like four billion. And basically said, if the state doesn't replace the 50 million that Congress has cut out of Medicare with state money, we'll oppose your bill. And about 10,000 hospital employees who, quite frankly, did not understand the issue, they should have just been told to show up at the, in front of the state house, come in and protesting my bill. I mean, my friends, you know, folks working in hospitals. Well, we worked it out and, in effect, uh, told them we'd pay them the $50 million. We never did. <laughs> but, um, but it was really pretty outrageous, you know. We, we were going to have to be a backstop for a federal cut. When, did the, when was the last time that happened? Um, so we had some, some issues along the way, but I've got to tell you, the process worked well. So why didn't uh, our bill, John's and mine and others, um, why wasn't it fully implemented? Well, because I left office. And uh, we were able to implement some aspects of it, the student mandate, sorry about that, but one of the reasons you've got to be insured, you guys, because of this thing. Um, the uh, provision that provided that people that were involuntarily unemployed would have health insurance. Um, but I was succeeded by a guy named Weld, who was a smart guy but never understood health care. Just never did. Didn't called it anti-business. What is more anti-business in the current health care system that forces responsible employers to pay for those who choose not to contribute? But he never got it, and he did everything he could to fight it. John fought him back, and finally, sadly, had to compromise by essentially giving up the employer-employee mandate in exchange for 25 cents on the cigarette tax, which Weld opposed also so that we could at least insure kids in the state. And that was the precursor, folks, to the Children's Health Insurance Program that was passed nationally with the leadership of Senator Kennedy, among others, and Senator Hatch. Um, and they followed John's model. Called him up and I said, 
John, what are you doing? He said, look, he said, realistically, I'll never forget our conversation. <laughs> he said, you know, unless we get a Democratic governor, this will never happen again. And um, I said, okay, I understand. So we got the Children's Health Plan. Uh, then we get this guy, Romney, who comes along and at least at least has the good sense. Uh, it's the only time I remember him actually acting like the son of George Romney, who, by the way, his dad was a wonderful guy. In fact, I don't know if I've ever told you this, John, but, but uh, I courted Kitty in a little yellow Rambler convertible. You guys don't even know what a Rambler is because George Romney was the only guy in Detroit making a small fuel-efficient car at the time. Serious. Um, but Mitt, who, can I be subtle? <laughs> the guy's a fraud. I mean, he's just a fraud. He's terrible. Anyway, um, just wanted to drop that in there. But the, <laughs> the, um, the, uh, the fact is that he deserves some credit in getting the process going. Now, in the end, he walked away from his own bill and had to be overridden by the legislature. Even Scott Brown voted to override him. But at least he had the good sense to, to start the process. And it was a pretty good process, I thought. Um, and we ended up with something not as good as the 88 bill, but pretty good. So back to your, sorry, this is kind of a windy answer, but uh, uh, you, can, you, can, you can bring people together and you can get a lot done. And it's very important to bring them together. Next question. I'm Hugo Torres. I'm an MPH student and a medical student at UC San Francisco. Um, and my question Did you is: Say again. Uh, I'm a medical student at UC San Francisco, uh, and I'm an MPH my student. My son just here. ran. Uh, my son-in-law just ran for DA. Unfortunately, finished second in San Francisco. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, and so my question uh, is about kind of prevention and something that we learn here in public health school is that there's a lot to health besides healthcare, and right. a lot of the policies that we implement affect health. And that doesn't really seem to permeate the national conversation about health reform at all. Um, and what do you think can be done about that? About prevention? That is? It's yeah. hard. It's hard. If you can tax the offending substance, or conduct for that matter, as we were able to on the cigarette side, I mean, what's happened with tobacco use in this country is a, is a big public health victory. Why? Well, a lot of it was education but uh, a lot of it was cost. I mean, you tell some kid who's going to go, what does it cost for a pack of cigarettes these days? Eight bucks, ten bucks? Is it that high? Huh? No, no, it's higher than I that. I think it's it? the wrong audience. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when we were kids, it was 25 cents. But for young people particularly, you start hitting, I know in Canada it's 12 bucks, but you start hitting them with that kind of price and it has an effect. Uh, it's difficult to do that, you know, taxing food, taxing soda, all this kind of stuff is very tough, folks. So the alternative is um, take the field of drug and alcohol use and abuse, which I happen to have spent a lot of time at, um, and where we were quite successful with something we call the Governor's Alliance Against Drugs and Alcohol, unfortunately my successors weren't interested. Well wasn't interested, his successor wasn't interested, Romney finally killed the thing. But it had a real impact. What did it consist of? Early education and prevention beginning in the early elementary grades. No joke. You don't want to wait till middle school. Kids are already starting to get into this stuff. And I would argue the same is true for comprehensive health education generally. As a matter of fact, do we have comprehensive health education in the public schools of this country? No. Do we have it in Massachusetts? No. Why don't we? In my view, comprehensive health education ought to be everybody's, every bit as much a part of the curriculum as math, science, or, or whatever. People say, well, we don't have enough time. Extend the school day, for heaven's sake. Why are we sending kids home at 2 o'clock in the afternoon? What's the answer to that question? Anybody know? Because in the 19th century, they had to go home and help their parents with the harvest. I'm not kidding you. Kids ought to be in school, you know, start them at 8.30, send them home at 4.30, quarter five. Why not? Give them a rich, full school day. We're beginning to do that in Massachusetts, but where's the rest of the country? Makes all kinds of sense. But I think comprehensive health education has got to be a, a regular part of the curriculum. And I'm talking, not talking about some cop in the dare program showing up three times in the fifth grade. I mean, that is not comprehensive health care, health education. And it ought to include 
nutrition. It ought to include sex. It ought to include uh, substance abuse. All of this stuff, beginning in the early elementary grades, and we've got plenty of age-appropriate curricula right now that can be used. And if we did that in every school system in America, trust me, we'd see some real results. But, you know, I chaired a national task force on, on, on just substance and alcohol abuse in the states, and uh, there was not a single governor in the United States of America that addressed that issue in his or her state of the state message this past. Can't get the National Governors Association interested. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Um, and, you know, all this stuff going on in Mexico, folks, has everything to do with demand in the U.S. of A., right? There's some Latin American political figure once said, look, as long as there's that giant vacuum cleaner to the north sucking up everything we produce down here, we'll continue to grow it. But where's the demand reduction strategy? And it's got to begin early. Trust me, it's got to begin early. So that's my response. Sure, there are other things, but you've got to start with these kids at a very early age, and it will have an impact. There's no question about that. I'm going to honor the one more quick question. See if I can make it a quick answer. Go ahead. Good afternoon, Governor. Jim Kennedy from Oklahoma. I'm an MPH student here, and uh, I'm an emergency physician by trade. Thank and you my, for Elizabeth Warren. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank we're you. Gonna put her in, <laughs> we're going to put her in the Senate. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, my question is, I've kind of been drag kicking and screaming into the whole thinking about politics, even at all. I'm, not, I'm a very political person, but I you know, obviously came to the conclusion that you have to interface, like you said, with the political process. Seeing a lot of, I mean, just the pol whole pol political process is very dirty and, you know, there's, there's a lot of corruption going on, obviously, with the Jack Abramoff stuff we've heard about and the recent Jack Pelosi and the 60-minute stuff that's been coming out recently. How is, is it possible to go in and not get sucked up into the whole corruption thing? I mean, that's, it's, how do you not sell your soul to the devil and get involved let me, in all let that? Let me try to keep this as brief as possible. First, I'm not being defensive about this. The overwhelming majority of people that guys like John and I work with are honest. Um, they're willing to live moderately. They go into politics because they care deeply, whether I happen to agree with them or not. They're in it for the best reasons. Yeah, there's a tiny minority that do things that are inappropriate, unethical, and at times illegal. But that's true of every profession, including the medical profession, as we all know. Um, but don't make the mistake of assuming that there's something inherently corrupting about politics. That's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. Um, and I will simply say this to you and to everybody here. If you're a health professional, folks, you cannot afford to be apolitical. You don't have the luxury to be apolitical. Because whether you like it or not, the political system is going to be very much a part of your life and the decisions you make, how you practice. Whether or not we can simplify the system, by the way, I didn't get into this, so that you don't have to have three or four people on staff doing nothing but collecting because of this cockamamie insurance system that we have. Um, all of those things involve public policy and politics. And uh, one of the best ways to do that is get involved in, in professional organizations and, and take leadership positions in them. Um, you know, guys like me need people like you to help us figure this out. You know, I'm a failed pre-med. I don't know. I, didn't, I never made it. You know, I have a lot of respect for those of you. But, but um, A, most of the people in, the, in, the, in, in, in politics really are in there for the best reasons. And B, you've got to be deeply and actively involved, all of you, all of you, if we're going to make this thing work. And then in closing, just one uh, quick observation. I saw the governor. He was on a task force of governors that was supposed to address health care. And he looked around at his co-governors and discovered they had no intention of discussing the issue at all. And one hour later, they were right in the middle of this. And so uh, a style which said, you're not going to come here and discuss anything else as long as I'm the governor and I'm at this table, it just shaped the way a whole group of people were going to just peripherally uh, deal with the issue. He was there. They were not going to deal with it peripherally. They took a lot of strong stands. 
and it, it's something about what leadership is really about. And it's incredibly admiring, and thank the governor very much for joining us. Thank you, Bill. Thank you.